Is Difficult Women a Collective Biography, a Book of Connected Essays, Feminist History or something else? <laughs> Start nice and simple. Um, it was designed as the biography of a, of a movement. Um, it was designed as a history of feminism. But I knew from the start I had this huge problem, which is that anyone who writes about feminism, the first thing that everybody does is absolutely sharpens their pencils and axes about the fact that you inevitably missed stuff out. And so I thought what I need to do is really own the fact that this can only ever be a partial history. And its working subtitle was an imperfect history of feminism. Um, And so the thematic idea then came um, about because of that. And the idea of doing it through fights, I think, is quite useful because that means that there was collision of ideas and that something changed. You know, there were lots and lots of subjects that I thought were really interesting, but there wasn't a change, a specific, you know, we, we used to be be like this and now we're like this, um, that I could tie it to. So I don't think it is a collective biography because I think there's no connection between the women except for the fact that they were all feminists and to that extent they were all change makers. And I've read some really great collective biographies, but I think they work best when they give you a sense of a milieu, which this doesn't really. There's not a lot that links Jaya Ben Desai in 1970s North London and, you know, Emmeline Pankhurst in 1900s Manchester. Um, and, you know, they're very, they're very disparate people. Some people make a distinction between a group biography, which is they all knew each other mm. or they were in the same place or whatever, and a collective biography, which is where... As you say, they they have no connection other than feminism or science or whatever it is. Were you trying to write a collective biography in that sense? Or was it just useful to use as a sort of launching off point uh, a woman for each of the fights you wanted to describe? I think the latter, because I felt, again, with the subject being so huge, that what you needed to do was bring it down to a human scale. And I always feel it's easier to follow one person through um a period of history and weirdly by becoming ever more specific i think you'll make you'll have a better chance of making universal points right and one of the things that when i'm reading non-fiction i want to feel the granularity of somebody's research which weirdly i think then helps you understand Mm. the the bigger picture better and so if you take it down all the way to one person or sometimes it's it's more... T- so Constance Lytton and Annie Kenny, that's sort of two people. I think probably Constance is, is bigger in that mix. Um, it helps you to understand what it's like to be a person moving through time, which is what I wanted to kind of mm-hmm. bring it back. Particularly, I think, with feminism, where one of the problems, I think, is when you get progress made, it seems like common sense. And it's one of the things I find... Um, <laughs> I love about the... I love about Hilary Mantel's the, the, the first two of that Thomas Cromwell trilogy is there is a real sense that you don't know what's going to happen. Like the moment, the hinge moment of Anne Boleyn's star appears to be falling. It's very hard not to read it now and think, well, obviously that was destined to happen. You'd obviously jump ship to Jane Seymour, but she manages to recreate that sense of moving, living through history without knowing the ending yet. Right. And so maybe you should stick with, with Anne Boleyn. Maybe this has all just been a temporary blip. Maybe she'll have a son next year. And that's sort of what I wanted to recreate with feminism is to put you back in the uh, sensation of what it's to be, what it is to be like making those arguments about women having the vote at a time when that's like a, seen as a kind of crackpot thing to be arguing for. Because obviously women are like this. Obviously women are, you know, delicate and they need to be protected. And when all of those arguments 
um, to again to go back to what it's like to just to live in a time where people's mindsets were completely different to which is, to me is the point of writing history right is to say and and the same thing about travel writing is to say here are people whose very basis on maybe even the way that they think is completely different mm. to all of your assumptions all your assumptions that are so wired so deeply into you that you don't even know their assumptions you just think that's what you know what what consciousness is or what um what it is to be alive and that's, I think, why I tried to focus it on that, that human level. How do you do your research? Badly, with lots of procrastination in between it, <laughs> I think is the only honest answer to that. Um, I went and cast my net out for primary sources quite wide. And the, there was some, the number of fights kept expanding. I think it started off with eight fights and then just more and more fights kept, kept getting added. Um, but I went to, for example, the LSE Women's Library. It's got a suffragette collection. Oh, yeah. And I just read lots and lots of suffragette letters on microfiche. And that was a really good way into it because you've got a sense of who was a personality and who had left enough records behind. And I write about this in the book about the fact that it's much easier to write a biography of a writer because they'll fundamentally probably given you lots of clues as to what they were thinking and doing in any particular time. Um, but I also found things that I found really moving, like the last letter from Constance Lytton before she has a stroke, which has been affected by being force-fed and having starved herself. Mm. And then you can see the jump, and then she learns to write again with her her other hand, and her handwriting's changed. And stuff like that, I just don't think you would get if you didn't allow yourself to be just sort of wade through some stuff. Someone volunteered to be my research assistant, um, I mean, I would have paid them, I did pay them, to do reports of books, which apparently some authors do, right? They will get mm. someone to go and read a load of books for them and then come back. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Maybe, I'll, you know, I'll try this. I've got a lot of ground to cover here. And she wrote a report on a book about, I think it was about environmental feminism. And it was really interesting, but I just hadn't had the experience of, of living through reading a book. And all of the stuff you do when you're reading what you don't even think about, where you kind of go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, and actually that reminds me of this thing that's happened in this other book that's a kind of well that's I wonder if there's more of that as I go along I don't think if you're going to try and write a book there is any shortcut you know I I thought this this would be a very I'm sure you could write a very shallow sort of one of those books I think of where they're a bit you know a bit wikipedia you know what I mean though <laughs> you know sometimes when you find like those very you know, 50 inspirational women books. Those were the books I was sort of writing against. And it's like, you've basically written 50 potted biographies of people. Yeah. And you've not tried to find anything that is off the beaten track or against the conventional way of reading these lives. It's just some facts. So biographically, you were perhaps more inspired by what you didn't want to write than what you did. Yeah, I think that's very true. I, I think, I think, Writing about feminism was a, an interesting first book to pick because there's so much of it. It's, you know, it's like half the human race. I mean, it's really not a niche subject. And to do the whole of British feminism really was a was a mad undertaking. Yes. Um. But I knew that I didn't want to write. You go, girl. Like here's some amazing ladies <laughs> in history, and and I wanted to actually lean in to the fact that they could be weird or nasty or mad and my editor said to me at one point and I said I'm really worried about writing some of this stuff you know she said yeah I think you can be more extreme in a book which I thought was a really interesting yes that is interesting um which I think is also very true in that I also feel like this about doing podcasts is that I very rarely get in trouble for things I've said on podcasts 
because it's quite hard to lazily clip a bit of them out and put them on Twitter and toss the chum into the water, right? Mm. And I think there's the same thing about if you write something on page 390 of a book, yeah, occasionally someone might take a screen grab of it, but people hopefully will have read pages 1 to 389 and kind of know where you're coming from by that point. Maybe trolls don't read. Well, I, d- I think so. I think a lot of the stuff that annoys me is a is a shallow engagement with complexity uh and a sort of attempt to go through books and kind of harvest them for their their talking points which is just not how it's just such a sad withered way of approaching the experience of reading isn't it like you know do i agree with this author or not i like reading people i disagree with um and so for example the you know the fact that i call the suffragettes terrorists and i write about that i think people are kind of reluctant to engage with the fact that people you agree with did terrible things in the pursuit of a goal that you agree with and I think it's very true about other situations like I always think about the fact that you know Nelson Mandela was in prison for terrorism and that gets that gets pushed down in the mix doesn't it when it all turns out that actually he was a great man and what you know that that incredibly long imprisonment in Robben Island is its own kind of totemic piece of the history of modern South Africa that you don't want to sort of sit with the awkward bits of the story too You've had a lot of difficult experiences on Twitter. I have. Would you have written this book if you hadn't lived through that? Hmm. Hmm. I think that's a hard question to answer. Um, I tried not to make it a, you know, here is an accounting of all my enemies. Um, And actually, my friend Rob read this book in draft. And he insisted that everyone that I was going to argue with had to be of sufficient stature to be worth arguing with. He's mm. like, you cannot argue with, you know, I think I put in my Jordan piece and piece like Princess Sparkle Horse 420, right? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I, and it, that's quite hard when you're writing about modern feminism, because actually, if you're thinking about the, what I think of as the very um, social justice end of it, right? The, the end of it that is very pro-sex work, very pro-self-identification of gender, very pro-prison abolition, police abolition, it's actually quite hard to find the people who are the theorists of that. Yes. It's more of a vibe um, that you will find in sort of social media spaces on Tumblr and Twitter and other places like that. So trying to find who is the person who's actually codified all that and put that down to then say, well, let's look at it from all sides can be really difficult. So I did find myself slightly arguing with people on Twitter. Um, I'm wondering more, like one way I read your book, it's very thought-provoking on feminism but it's also very thought-provoking just on what is a difficult person and there's a real thing now about if you're low in agreeableness that might mean you're a genius like Steve Jobs or it might mean you're a Twitter troll and we have a very sort of basic binary way of thinking about being difficult and it's actually very nuanced and you have to be very clever about how to be difficult and in a way I wondered if one of the things you were thinking about was well, everyone's doing difficult in a really poor way. And what we need, especially on the left, is smart difficult. And here is a book about that. And please improve. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a lot of that. And it's part of the kind of um, sort of bro end of philosophy is about maybe women have been less brilliant through history because they're less willing to be disagreeable. Yeah. They have a higher need to be liked which I think is and kind of interesting. I don't entirely buy it, but I think there's an interesting thing there about whether or not you have to be willing to 
be iconoclastic. The, the thing that I find interesting about that is, again, there's another way in which it can be perverted, which is the idea that if you're a heretic, you're automatically right. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of... you know, Or brave. A, or brave, right? And I think it's you can see it in some of the work that I'm doing at the moment about, you know, the intellectual dark web being a really interesting example, that some of them stayed true to the kind of idea that you were a, a sceptic, and some of them disbelieved the, the mainstream to the extent that they ended up falling down the rabbit holes of, you know, thinking ivermectin was a really great treatment for covid or that the vaccines were going to microchip you or whatever it might be and so i'm always interested in how personality affects politics i guess um and yeah how you can be self-contained and insist on being right and not kowtow to other people without being an asshole is a perpetually interesting question it's coming up in my second book a lot which is about genius which is about sort of a, a similar thing, is how do you insist when everybody tells you that you're wrong, that you're right? And the thing that we don't talk about enough in that context, I think Newton is a very good example, is that obviously he made these incredible breakthroughs with gravity and, and mathematics and then spends <laughs> literally decades doing biblical chronology and everyone tells him that he's wrong and he is wrong. And we don't really talk about that side of it very much, right? All the people who spent all their time studying phlogiston and... Um, you know mesmerism well that's more complicated because I think that does lead to interesting insights a lot of people who the world told was wrong were wrong yeah and we over index in always writing about the ones who were the one Galileo saying the earth still moves and they turned out to be correct yes there are good books about biographies of failures but they're less popular which is you know tough because most of us are going to be failures yes well you're not going to buy a book to reinforce that no, but maybe there could be some deep sort of spiritual learning from it, which is that a life spent in pursuit of a goal that turns out to be illusory is still is still a noble one. That's a fundamentally religious opinion that I think a secular society is not very good at uh, handling. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I've been I've been doing lots of work um, for Radio Four about the link between kind of politics and religion and whether or not religion has to some extent replaced politics as Western society has become more secular. And I think there is there is some truth in that. And one of the big problems is, yes, it doesn't have that sort of spirit of self-abnegation or the idea of kind of forgiveness in it or the idea of just deserts happening over the horizon of death. Like everything's got to be settled now in mm-hmm. politics here, which I think is a bad fit for religious impulses and ideas. Yeah. Um, what is the role of humour in being difficult? Mm. I think it's really important because it does sweeten the pill of uh, trying to make people be on your side and so I had a long discussion with myself about how much I should put those jokes in the footnotes of the book mm-hmm. uh and how much I should kind of, kind of be funny generally because I think the problem is if you're if you're funny people don't think you're serious um and I think it's a big problem particularly for women writers that actually I think sometimes and this happens in journalism too that women writers often play up their seriousness and sort of uber serious persona because they want to be taken ser- taken seriously if you see what i mean it's very hard to be a foreign policy expert and also have a kind of lively cheeky side right we think that there's some certain things demand a kind of humorlessness to them but the other thing that i think humor is very important is it creates complicity with the audience if you laugh at someone's joke you've aligned yourself with them right which is why we now have such a taboo and a prohibition on racist jokes sexist jokes whatever they might be because it's it's everyone in the audience against that minority but that can, again, if you, if you use your powers for good, be quite 
powerful. Like I think it's it is quite powerful to see. Uh, there's one of the suffragettes where they th- someone throws a cabbage at her and she says something like, "I must return this to the man in the audience who's lost his head." And given that all the attacks on the um, the suffragettes were that they were these sort of mad, radical, weird, you know, unfeminine, inhuman, pe- you know, people, then that was a, you know, that was that was a very good way of of, of instantly saying mm. that you weren't taking it too seriously. One of the big problems with activism is obviously that people, normal people who don't spend every moment of their life thinking about politics, find it a bit repellent, because it's so monomaniacal and all-consuming. And therefore, being able to puncture your pomposity in that way, I think, is quite useful. So if there are people who want to learn from Helen Lewis, how can I be difficult at work and not be cast aside? You would say, tell more low-grade jokes, get people to like you, and then land them with some difficult remark. Use your powers for for good after that. It's tricky, isn't it? I think... The, the 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 real answer to how to be difficult at work is decide what level of compromise you're willing to entertain to get mm. into positions of power, which is the same question any activist should ask themselves. You know, at what point do I need, how much do I need to engage with the current flawed system in order to change it? Uh, and people can be more or less open with themselves, I guess, about that. I think um, the recent Obama memoir is quite open about, for example, on the financial relief in 2008, about how much he should have tried to be more radical and change stuff yeah. and how much he did he actually let himself think he was being this great consensualist working with the republican party and therefore not get stuff done and then the other end i think you have the criticism i made of the corbyn project which was that it was better to have kind of clean hands than get things done there's a great essay by matt bruning called purity politics which says uh, no what is it called purity leftism and it's that the purity leftism, you know, the purity leftists' uh, approach is not so much that they're worried about that oppression is happening, but that they should have no part of it. Mm. And I think that's part of the question of being difficult too, is is actually how much do you have to work with and compromise yourself by working with people who with whom you're opposed? And it's a big, big question in feminism. You know, there are people who are now say, well, how could you, po- how could feminists possibly work with the Conservative Party? Entirely forgetting that Emmeline Pankhurst was, you know, ran as a Conservative candidate. Right, and and there were members of the suffragettes who went on to join the British Union of Fascists. Um, That actually some of the core tenets of feminism have been won by people who didn't at all see themselves on the left. Yes. Um, If I was the devil's advocate, I'd say that well-behaved women, for want of a better phrase, do, do make a lot of history. Not just suffragists, but factory workers... Um, political wives, political mistresses. Um, how, you know, what's the balance between needing difficult women and needing not not exactly compliant women, but people who are going to change it by, as you say, completely engaging with the system and almost just getting on with it? There's a scale, isn't there? Because if you make yourself too unbelievably difficult, then no one wants to work with you, and it's. I, I think the suffragettes are a really good example of that, actually. The, the intervention of the First World War makes that story impossible to play out without it. Um, but had they continued on that course of becoming ever more militant, ever more bombings and you know pouring acid on greens and snipping telephone wires, the criticism that was made of them was, are they actually turning people off this cause? Yeah. Um, and you get people saying that, you know, that actually the suffragettes set back the cause of women's yeah. um, suffrage, which I'm not... 
entirely sure I buy. I think I certainly don't buy it in the terms of the situation in 1905, because um, Fawcett writes about the fact that, you know, there were loads of all these articles decrying the suffragettes, whereas previously they just been like the, the cause of suffrage, which had been going on for 70, 80 years, quite in earnest in legal form, had just been completely ignored. So there was definitely a moment where what it really needed was attention. And but then you can you make the same argument in 1914 about whether or not the suffragettes were still doing an equal amount of good. I think then it's much more tenuous. And there was a really good article saying that, essentially your point, well-behaved women do make history, saying that a lot of boring legal Mm. heavy lifting. And it's one of the things I find very interesting about where modern feminism in Britain is. A lot of the work that's most interesting is is being done through things like judicial reviews. Yes. Which is a lot of very boring pulling together large amounts of court bundles and people saying, is this obiter? A word which I once understood and now don't anymore. But it's not people chaining themselves to railings or throwing themselves under horses Mm. it's people getting up in the morning and putting another day's shift in at quite boring admin and I do think that's maybe that's something that I underplayed in the book because it's not so narratively captivating but Brenda Hale made that point to me that she would have been a suffragist because she just believed in playing things by the book you want it by the book and I do think now I find uh I don't I don't agree with throwing you know paint and pies and milkshakes and stuff like that at people whose political persuasions I disagree with right I fundamentally don't believe in punching Nazis which is a great debate do you remember the great Twitter debate of a couple of years ago about whether it's okay to punch a Nazi I think if you live in America or the UK and there are democratic ways and a free press in which to make your political case you shouldn't you don't need to resort to a riot Mm. Um, and that's not the case all over the world obviously but I do think that I am I think difficulty takes many, many forms. A question about Margaret Thatcher. Yes. Was she good for women, even though she wasn't good for feminism? So millions of women joined the labour force in the 1980s, more than before or since. Um, It was the first time that women got their own personal allowance for income tax, rather than being taxed as an extension of their husband's income. I'm trying to remember, was that a Tory policy? That was 1988 budget, and it came into effect in 1990. And um, she also publicly supported, she said, you should be nice to mothers who go out to work. They're just earning money for their families. So even though she definitely did not consciously, I think, help the cause of feminism, you would probably rather be a woman in the 80s than the 70s. Oh, yeah, definitely. But because of her. That's my challenge to you. No, it's a good challenge, and I think it's one that has a lot of merit. I'm not sure whether or not she would um, be grateful to you for positioning her as Margaret Thatcher feminist hero. And it's <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. Having, I wrote a screenplay last year about the women bef- in, the, in politics bef- in the years before Margaret Thatcher, and it's very... It was always, and I cover this a bit in the book, that women have always struggled in struggled in labour, a collective movement where it's like if you let one woman through, you've got to let them, let them all. Like mm. I'm the vanguard, versus the Thatcher route, which was like I'm just me, a person, judge me on who I am, and not making such a kind of radical collective claim. So I, I that's the bit that holds me back from thinking from endorsing her as a kind of good thing for women is I think she was Elizabeth the first in the sense where she was like. I'm 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 good like a man rather than saying women are good and I'm a woman which I think are two different propositions but it's definitely true that I I I think that growing up in a society that had a female prime minister was a huge deal um 
you know, it's sort of, you know, America still hasn't had a female president. It's just, it's just, mm. not, it's, it, you know, if you're a girl growing up there, it's just, you've, that's something that you've never seen. And the other half of it is I think it was incredibly powerful to see Dennis Thatcher. Yes. The true feminist hero that is Dennis Thatcher. But genuinely, that's somebody who was older than her, who was willing to take a back seat. And he found a role for men that was not being the alpha. Mm. It was kind of the, I don't have anything left to prove and I like playing golf. Haven't I got a great life while, you know, the little woman runs around with their red <laughs> boxes Oof, all a bit much. I think that was almost a more radical thing for people to see. Yeah. Um, and I and it's interesting to me that he was somebody who had fought in the Second World War, because I think that I think the 70s and the feminist revolution, I think in some ways depends on there being a generation of men who didn't have anything to prove in yes. terms of masculinity. And it's really interesting to me that so Barbara Castle's husband ted was also i think a little bit older than her but he was also very much in that that dennis thatcher mold of woman right you're exhausting um and uh maureen colhoun i also write about in the book her husband keith was a well all accounts a very decent guy who was Mm. totally accepting of her ambitions and then conducted himself with incredible dignity after she left him for a woman and i think that's a story that i'm interested in hearing a bit more about is is of the the men who weren't threatened, um, so I do think that's a big that's a big challenge that 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 the Thatchers did present to orthodox values. But let's not underplay them as conservatives. Oh no, hugely conservative. Um, and also the fact that the, that to some extent Margaret Thatcher was reacting to an economic tide that was very useful to her. More women in the workforce meant more productivity, meant higher GDP. Mm. You know, it was, and I I think it was at that point a train that was just not why would you throw yourself in front of it to try and reverse it and get women back into the to the home her advisors um wanted a tax break for marriage oh that's a classic conservative because they said we're policy. you know we're in office and this is what we're here for and she said i can't do it to the mill girls in bolton i can't give a tax break to wives in surrey playing bridge and in a way i think she was very quietly and and as you say, for political reasons, not entirely openly, quite on the side of the working woman for moral reasons that we would usually call feminist, but which, because it's her and because of everything else she believes, it doesn't really make sense to call them feminist. But it's difficult to think of another prime minister who has had so much rhetoric saying, yes, women should go to work, that's a good thing, don't don't yell at them about it. And who has implemented economic policies that's, you know, given them tax breaks and and tried to level the playing field a bit. So it's a sort of conundrum for me that she didn't want to be called a feminist, but she did a lot of things that quotes, if, if if you were that sort of person would say, undermined the traditional family or whatever. Yeah, and she found a way to be a powerful woman and an archetype of what that was, mm. which I think, again, is based enormously on Barbara Castle. I think Barbara Castle oh, is yeah. the template for it. With Down the, to the hair. With the big yeah. hair and the fluttering the eyelashes and that kind of, what I think of as kind of iron femme, right? <laughs> it's, which is where you're very, very feminine, but it's in a steely, ball-crushing yeah. kind of way. Although the interesting thing, Barbara Castle cried a lot. She would have frequently burst into tears about mm. stuff, which again was, I think, kept the men around her slightly off balance. That they yes. that they didn't they didn't know how to, which I think any good politician uses what they've got. But the thing that struck me when I read more about Thatcher last year was about the fact that if she hadn't been the first female prime minister, I think we would write a lot more about her kind of lower middle middle class background and what a challenge that was, and yeah. the fact that that really, in some ways, 
I think the Tory party really loved having a female leader once they got over the initial shock. Yes. Because it was kind of like, well, aren't we modern? And now Labour can't have a go at us about all this kind of stuff. Because look at our woman leader. What I think was more of a profound challenge for a long time was the kind of Araviste sort of idea that, that she was as you say, on a representative of, of working people, yeah. upwardly mobile, you know, or like the right to buy being an example of one of these policies. I think that was a big challenge to the kind of men in smoky rooms. I don't think they ever got over it. Carrington called her a fucking stupid petty bourgeois woman. Petty bourgeois is exactly the right, yeah. I think, the right term of abuse. And there was a... And I think that's what I mean. I think it came out as misogyny, but actually it was it was also driven by class as well. Yeah. The fact that she was no better than she ought to be. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, absolutely. But that's but I think that's how you how you see and, and obviously I think and I think Ted Heath experiences as a great human leading to the incredible sulk, one of my favourite phrases. <laughs> um that he just never kind of got over that he had been beaten by a, a woman. I think that was an, an extra kind of poison pill for him of, of the ingratitude of the party that they would replace him with a woman. Well, and a woman of his own class. Right, and and exactly, it's not like she, you know, she wasn't sort of Lady Astor wafting in on a cloud yeah. of sort of diamonds and violet scent. It was, hang on a minute, you, you're saying this person is better than me. Now, before Margaret Thatcher became leader of the Tory Party, mm-hmm. almost nobody thought that she was going anywhere. Mm. Right up to say a week before the leadership election, people were ha- would people would have meetings about who the candidates were, and they wouldn't even discuss her. Who are the people in politics today that no one's really sort of gathered actually have got this big potential? Are actually really good. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? That essentially she goes into that leadership context, and they sort of think, well, someone's got to shake it up a bit. Someone's got to represent the right of the party, and then they go round. Uh, and it was Airy Neve who was ran her campaign, go around yeah. sort of saying, well, you know, vote for her, it'll give, it'll give Ted a, a shock, you know? It'll, and then and then the first then ballot result is. comes in and they go, oh, God, it's given us a shock as well. <laughs> and I think at that point, like, Willie Whitelaw piles in, doesn't he? In yeah. the kind of, but it's it's too late and the train's already moving. And the other one who's, it's um, Hugh Fraser, Antonia Fraser is the other yes. um, sort of, and he runs very much from the sort of patrician kind of, you know, candidate background. I love that, that leadership election is, it it symbolises what I like about politics, which is just that it sometimes there is a moment that is a hinge when a force that's been bubbling away suddenly pops up. And like not to get too much into the great man or in this case, great woman theory of history, but someone makes a big decision that is either going to be the right call or the wrong call. And for Margaret Thatcher, it's almost insanely ambitious and she could have ended up looking incredibly stupid. Mm. Uh, and because the life didn't take that fork in the road, we'll never look back on that. But there are many people who've made that gamble. And again, to go back to your failures point, you know, have crashed. You have to have that kind of instinct in politics. Who's good now? I was just thinking this morning that um, Bridget Phillipson of Labour, who's now currently shadow education, I think has been underrated for a long time. Finally less so, given that she's made it to the shadow cabinet. Who knows if she can make an impression there. But um, she is smart. So I'll give you an example. She was asked the inevitable question that all Labour politicians are now asked, like, what is a woman? And she said, (laughs) the correct, this is Richard Madeley asked her this, she said, well, to my mind is the correct legal answer that also makes sense to normal human beings who don't follow politics all the time which is it's an adult human female or anybody with a gender recognition certificate 
and there are you know difficulties in how you might sometimes put that into practice but those are the two categories of people and it was like this moment where I was like why why has it taken you so long to work out an answer to this question that is both correct and explicable right and and I think that is an underrated gift in politicians um is actually deciding what issues you're going to fudge around and which issues you you actually have to come out and say what you think, even if people disagree Mm. with it. It was one of Thatcher's great strengths was that she made her decisions and she stuck to them. Mm. I mean, obviously, then you get to the poll tax and it becomes a a problem. But I think there's one of the problems I felt in the Ed Miliband era of Labour was that he wanted, he didn't want to annoy anybody and ended up annoying everybody. Um, Where streeting, I think, is also, um, no, I wouldn't say underrated. I would say he's now rated. And clearly has got his eye on on the leadership next. Um, but, you know, those are, they were two interesting. Bridget Phillipson has a much more marginal seat than you'd like to see from somebody who's going to be um, leader. Mm. Um, you know, Wes is an interesting character, grew up on free school meals, has been through cancer in the last couple of years, is gay, you know, has a has a genuinely kind of, but is also on the scene as being on the right of the party. So he's got lots of different identity factors and political factors that kind of are, may, you know, will make people very hard, hard to know where to put him I think or how to brand him I guess um but those are two those are two ones who make me think that there's some interesting stuff happening on the Tory side there are some people who, who are quietly competent so Michael Gove I think whatever you think about his mm. persona or anything like that is the person they put in when they want stuff to actually to happen I think Nadim Zahawi did very well as vaccines minister without anyone really noticing yes which is probably not what you want when you're a minister but it's probably what you want from the public why are so many women late bloomers mm. we obviously the constraints of having a family i think yeah, i was gonna say children i think is the answer but there to must that be one. other reasons i think i mean who knows i may be straying into territory which is pseudoscience here but i do also think that um menopause is quite important when you lose all your um you know caring for others nicely softly softly hormones and your your hormone profile becomes much more male I think that makes it easier to not care what people think about you to some extent as does the fact that you can no longer be beautiful and play that card um and I don't know I I think also so that again this is I don't know if this is supported by the evidence I think there's more of I think more of the men more men fall away I don't know I think if you're a guy who's found it very hard to form personal relationships then maybe your 50s and 60s can be quite lonely. Um, whereas I think that's often the time in which women kind of find a sort of second wind. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is all, I mean, none of this is, there's no evidential basis for this. This is just based on my, my sort of anecdotal reading of, of of people that I'm thinking of. Camille Pellier once wrote, I mean, she put it in very strict terms. She said something like, um, when the menopause happens the wife becomes this sort of tyrant and starts, you know, um, yeah, no, I'm, looking, I'm very much looking forward to that, yeah. Okay. And and the husband becomes this kind of wet rag and his, his testosterone level drops and the whole power balance just flips. And you're sort of, you're saying that, but not in quite that... Um, I don't think, I, and it's not... That's quite an aggressive way she's phrased it. Yeah, and it's not a universal truth. No, no, not at all. I just think for the people for whom that happens, that is quite an arresting thing that often gives them the liberation I also do think there's a kind of mindset change I mean I don't have kids but I know from women that I know who whose kids have gone off to university that if Mm. if you have been the primary caregiver there is suddenly a great big hole in your life and what do you fill it with 
And actually, do you have to find a new focus and direction and purpose? Because you don't want to be sort of turning up at their halls of residence going, hello, <laughs> just thought I check in, see if you're all right. And whereas for men who maintain their sort of career focus throughout, whilst also adding on a family, that's not such a kind of big realignment of of their, their day and their life and their, what they feel the focus of their life is. I spoke to Tyler Cowan about this and he wondered if, there's something about um, women become more acceptable in their looks. So you think about Angela Merkel and Margaret Thatcher. Mm. It's, I think you were sort of implying this. When the woman reaches middle age, the public or the people around them are less likely to judge them on whether they're good looking. And so some of that sexism That's slightly funny. falls away. Because when you're a woman in your 20s or 30s, you're very susceptible to being looked at or rated or whatever. Whereas Margaret Thatcher had a sort of, I don't know, a motherly quality that no one would... Uh, there was a kind of cult of finding her attractive and... and yeah, and Alan also Clark we had a queen for things about her. 70 years, right? So we do have that sort of idea of what female power looks like, mm. which is icy and sort of non-emotional, but, you know... But I've seen that in the office, that women in their 20s have a difficult time if they're good-looking because mm. there are certain types well, of men... Well, people assume you're stupid as well. Well, and also it's just what men go to. They they talk about you being that. Whereas once a woman gets slightly past that, men don't automatically sort of go, oh, how would you rate her out of 10 or whatever? And that creates a space to yeah. see them as the person. I see them as actual humans. Yes. I think, that there's, I think that's a really interesting thesis. I, I also think that there's a... I think being a young woman is a particular kind of problem. So I think there's definitely a form of ageism against women where it's silly old bat, right? Which I do think you get silly old duffer as well, but there is mm. a, a sort of extra level as well that's about women. It's like, why are you still talking? No one wants to hear from you. You're, that's the phrase they use on the internet now, you're dusty, you and your dusty opinions. <laughs> um, but I think you get the contrary version of that as a young woman, whereas I think we find, you know, the, the phrase young Turk implies man doesn't it it's like thrusting young guy on his way up super ambitious he's the new generation whereas i don't think you necessarily have that whole sort of coalition of positive stereotypes about young women it's untested learner you know still needs to learn the ropes that kind of like i i i'm internally grateful to my boss in my 20s jason cowley the new statesman for making me deputy editor of the statesman i was 28 which i think was a pretty Mm. radical thing to do when I, I don't think it would necessarily felt so radical to, to make a 28 year old guy no although I say that but then in his lot became editor of private eye when he was 26 and there was like a revolution among the old guard and he had to like <laughs> sort of metaphorically execute a few mm. of them outside the woodshed um so I do think that I also think people begin to there's uh, now this is really straying to some dangerous choppy feminist waters competition between women can be very fierce obviously um i write about this in the book in terms of smurfette syndrome yes. you know, the idea if there's only one place for a woman then by god i've got to have it but i do think that there can be some jealousy that maybe recedes and i think it's probably true for men and women as you get older people don't see you as a threat because they think well by the time i'm 40 maybe i'll have all the stuff you have but if you've got that stuff at 28 i think there's a real feeling from other people in the generation that those the stars Mm. appealing away and there's real resentment of them so one of the things I do is I provide kind of counseling services to young journalists who've just suddenly had like a really big 
promotion or career lift or whatever it is. Mm. And I feel indebted to, to, you know, to go and say to them, by the way, this is amazing, but people will hate you because of it. Absolutely. It's very striking to me that we've had a, a period of very young politicians being leaders, but they're men. And the women who've either competed with them or become leaders afterwards are um, in their 50s. And I do think there's something about the accept, what's an acceptable public woman. And the idea of authority. I think that's the thing. I think as yeah. you get older as a woman, it's, um, it's easier to seem authoritative. Someone like Stella Creasy, I think, has had a much more difficult time just because she happens to be under a certain age. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And I think the fact that she's now got very young children at a quite a relatively um, old age. I know that, sorry, apologies to Stella if you're listening. But it, but it is comparatively rare to have children after 40 still. Um, that, that will be interesting how that complicates her next decade in politics. Yeah. Um, and I do think those super top jobs, there's a really brilliant piece of research which I put in the book about these, the sort of so-called demanding jobs, you know, the kind of lawyers, the top lawyers and oh, yes, yes. journalists and politicians, greedy jobs, they're called. And the fact is that they have become more demanding in terms of hours as women have entered the workforce. And it's the, now the thing has become fetishised is can you do the 14 hour days? And it becomes a soft way of excluding women with young young kids. The problem, I think, will come with all of this when both men and women end up needing to look after elderly parents as we're having more and more of that extension, mm. those decades at the end of life when you're alive, but maybe you're not as mobile as you were, maybe you need more help from your family. And I think there is a lot of anger among certain types of women that they just feel like they're finally free from their caring responsibilities <laughs> and then they get landed with with another one. But I, you know, I've been to some feminist conferences recently where there's a, great, there's a famous saying which you know, women are the only minority that more, get more radical with age. Which I think is probably hmm. true. And you can meet some groups of fifty-something women, and they are fuming, hmm. really fuming. And they've now got the the time and the sort of social capital with which to exercise that that fumingdom, as it were. Is Roy Jenkins overrated? <laughs> That's the most random question. Uh, he's not my favourite politician, mainly because I'm Team Castle for life, sure. right? And I think she was treated very badly by um the men in that Wilson cabinet, the first, the sixty six to seventy one of whom he was one, right? Um, I think that yeah, I think I in. Do you know what? I haven't got very strong opinions on him compared with my strong opinions on James Callaghan, who I I, I, I I am anti, and I know there are some Callaghan stands out there, but I think the utterly cynical way in which he sucked up to the unions in order to get the leadership at the cost, ultimately, of then Margaret Thatcher in 79, it strikes me as one of the most sort of cynical pieces of politicking Um you are sailing very close to being a Thatcherite. I'm though, not though. a Thatcher. I'm not. No, I know. But I can see. But if I think you re, and I think Rachel Reeves has basically written about this, who's now Labour's um, shadow chancellor, that if Barbara Castle has succeeded within in place of strife on what were now to us very mild measures, right? A conciliation right. pause where you have negotiations, strike ballots, you know, no wildcat strikes. If she'd managed to push through some of those, then some of the excesses of the 70s would not have happened, or at least Labour would have been able to show that it had a grip of them. But you have a situation where the teachers were asking like something like 25% pay rise in the run-up to the 79 election. And there was, you know, and, and the Labour government just looked completely out of control. 
And so, yeah, that's my that's my Callahan beef. What's your Roy Jenkins beef then? I don't have beef. Um, I can't remember why I wrote that question. I read about him in your book. I suppose I think that he he did implement some good progressive measures, but that he was essentially a sort of patrician wannabe and that his whole career in politics is much more um, middling and establishment and his radicalism was... I don't know, perhaps overrated when we look back. Well, I will go away and read some more. I read quite a lot of the sort of... The the mad thing about the cabinet in that, particularly in that Wilson government, is that they're all obviously sitting there writing copious amounts of... To the extent that Barbara Castle would actually write literal notes in cabinet for her her diary later on. But Tony Benn was writing notes. Crossman was writing notes. Jenkins was essentially wrote lots of... uh, very full memoir. Harold Wilson wrote one of the most boring memoirs that mm. the world has ever seen. The trade union leaders wrote memoir. Jack Jones wrote a memoir. It was an astonishingly literate and writerly sort of set of people. And yet, you know, and yet the the cabinet was in some respects kind of utterly dysfunctional. And but with Wilson still running a sort of, um, you know, sort of like who was kind of currently had been nice to him. And he went, of course, in the second term, he became incredibly paranoid. Yes. Um, it was it was not a kind of model of good government, really. And again, Callaghan has one of the greatest sort of political resurrections ever, right, when he completely screws up the Treasury and Northern Ireland and then uses Northern Ireland as Home Secretary in order to kind of make himself back into a uh, respectable mainstream figure. But before we go and fight Roy Jenkins stands, we should both go and okay. find out what our beef is with him. Um, I'm going to say her name wrong. Colhoun? Colhoun. Colhoun. She said Labour would rather fight Powell than solve poverty. Is that still true? <laughs> what you've read out there is a phrase that I think Maureen Colhoun said after, not the Rivers of Blood speech, but another Enoch Powell speech yes. in the 70s, in which got her in enormous trouble. Would you like to endorse this sentiment that got her called a racist <laughs> and it was used as a pretext for drumming her out of the the Labour Party. Um, so what happened to Maureen after that is that she, uh, her, her local party tried to deselect her. It then went to an appeal at the NEC. She eventually ended up holding on to her candidacy and then she lost at 79 to a guy called Tony Marlowe, who's one of the most, I talk about Thatcher, I mean, mm. briskly, to the extent that his nickname was Tony Von Marlowe. Um, but yeah, he wrote, he has some terrible quote about Harriet Harman as well, which is something like these bra burners have got a chip on their shoulder or something. It was some terrible mixed metaphor involving yes, how you yes. couldn't wear a bra if you also had a chip on your shoulder. Anyway, I digress. Um, I'm not trying to endorse her quote, but no, I think if you replace a, Powell with Boris... I think it's a really interesting quote about... Um, comes back to purity leftism, what we were talking about yeah. before, is actually, do you want the win or do you want the fight? Yes. And there is, I think, more of a tendency on the left than the right to want to be on the right side of history, to want to be pure, to want to be fighting, and and that a, a sort of sense that that's that the perpetual struggle is the bit that you want to be in. That's the bit that's exciting rather than the win. I think one of the really interesting examples to me is gay marriage. I was just reading this Jonathan Rauch piece this morning about the fact that his argument being that there was a coalition of kind of right wingers and centrists and liberals in America who fought with the radical left who wanted it who wanted gay rights to be predicated on the idea of sort of smashing the nuclear family and everything like that to say let's make gay rights really boring and let's talk Mm. a lot about how much we want to get married and maybe we want to adopt um you know let's recruit 
all the people who happen to have been born gay but are also Tories or Republicans. Yeah. Um, and I think this, a similar thing happened to him here, where you have David Cameron saying, I support gay marriage, not in spite of being a conservative, but because I'm conservative. And you frame it as essentially a very normy, boring thing. And I think that has been really interesting to watch in the sense of, I think that's why gender has now come much more to the fore, because it's the sense that, well, if even Tories are OK with people being gay, it's not like what's like what's left? Like what's how is that interesting <laughs> anymore? Um, and, and so I, I, I think the criticism she was trying to make there is very true uh, in the sense that sometimes Labour wants to look right more than it wants to win a halfway victory. What are some of the best or most underrated biographies of women? Ooh. Ooh. That's a really interesting question. Uh, I read a lot of royal biographies. So I very much like Leonie Frieda's biography of Catherine de Medici, for example. Mm -hmm. There is also a... You're going to think this is terrible. Princess Michael of Kent wrote a joint biography of Catherine de Medici and Diane de Poitiers, the mistress of Henri Deux, which is called The Serpent and the Moon, which is a really... I think it's... Actually, it's not a bad biography, but I think it's quite interesting to write a biography of the wife and the mistress together. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Because the story of them is obviously so intertwined and their power relationship obviously changes right because mm. Catherine is the dowdy wife who bears the 10 children Diane is the kind of unbelievably gorgeous older woman but then of course the king dies and it's like oh nice shatter you've got there shame one of us is the dowager queen and one of us is now just some woman <laughs> and makes a hand back her shannel so to her so um I enjoyed that very much I uh I'm trying to think what the best political women biographies are do you have a favourite Elizabeth I biography? I think there must be a really great one out there, but I can't... I don't know well, I like the one best. by Elizabeth Jenkins, but it's now quite out of date, um, and I don't know how true it is anymore, but it's just as a piece of writing and a piece of advocacy for Elizabeth. Um, it's an excellent book, and it, sold, it was a sort of big bestseller in 1956, which I find a very compelling argument for reading a book, but I appreciate that a lot of other <laughs> not people not might not. Taste. Um, that's interesting. There, I, I I like Antonia Fraser as a biographer. I don't know if you've got strong yes. feelings pro or anti. Her Mary Queen of Scots book is very good. Her Marie Antoinette book is very good. And I actually, I interviewed her once about how she felt about the Sofia Coppola film, which is basically like a sort of two and a half hour music video. She was totally relaxed. She was like, it's a film. I wrote a book. Yes, no, she's good. I mean, she didn't that. say it like that. She didn't go, film in it, sucking on a kind of roll up. <laughs> she said it in a very lofty Antonia Fraser kind of way. But I think that's a good thing if you're an author to kind of go, what works in a biography is not what works in a film so yes um but yeah I, I kind of I grew up reading those Jean Plady historical novels so I guess I I read a lot of biographies of queens I'm trying to think whether or not I read any biographies of modern women I haven't read I have on my shelf the Red Comet the Sylvia Plath biography oh yes and I also which is on my to read pile as is the biography of Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas by Janet Malcolm which I oh, yeah. one day will treat myself to. Um, but yeah. I... What are the best or most underrated biographies by women? By women. Well, again, then we go back to... I mean, you've named some of them, maybe. The interesting thing is, I remember when I did Great Lives, they said, you know, the Radio 4 programme yes. about history, that they said the one thing that they are trying to encourage more of is men nominating women. 
because they found there was no problem getting women to nominate men and men to nominate men, but they found there weren't that many men who picked women, which I think is interesting, right? I, I really wanted, when Difficult Women came out, I wanted a man to review it. Mm. Did that not happen? No, it didn't happen. Um, and I think everybody would have... I um, I think from the point of view of male reviewers, why would you review a book on feminism when you're going to get loads of people going, what do you think, what do you think, mansplaining feminism? But, you know, it's an intellectual project, right? It's not a... It, it should be open to criticism by absolutely anyone not on you know you don't have to pass an identity test it's a it's an ideology and a school of history um and so i would what's the best biography of a woman written by a man is a kind of a question i'm interested in yes that's very difficult to think of how, and like and how many of them are there because it's it's just strikes very me that when i'm them. naming all my women biographies of women that they're all by women yes it's difficult to think... It's easy to think of biographies of men written by women. Right. Hermione are... Lee's out there repping uh, for you know, Tom Stoppard's biography recently. But, yeah, that can be... People can send in answers on a postcard for That's that one. That's very good, yes. Um, should there be less credentialism in journalism? Yes. Uh, I started... I don't know if you know this. I started as a sub-editor on the Daily Mail. Yeah. Um, and I worked alongside lots of older guys who had come up through local papers at the time when the trade unions were so strong that you had to do two years on local paper before you got to um, Fleet Street. And I therefore I worked with quite a lot of people who had left school either 16 or 18 and were better at subbing than people who, you know, than recent university graduates. And so the way that journalism has become, first of all, a graduate profession and now a postgraduate profession... I don't think it's got any real relationship to the quality of journalism. Mm. It's not, it's a, there are a sort of set of skills that you need to learn, but a lot of them are more about things like critical thinking than they are about literature. If you see what I mean? Yes. That's the thing, that's what I find very interesting about journalism, it's an interesting marriage of kind of, um, you know, you have to have the personal relationships, you have to be able to find people and make them want to be interviewed by you and get the best out of them. Then you have to be able to write it up in prose that other humans can understand. But then there is also a level of rigour underneath it that you have to have in terms of your note-keeping and record-keeping and knowledge of the law and all that kind of stuff. Um, but none of that maps onto any kind of degree course that you might be able to take. And so I think that's... And the the, the other huge problem, I think, in journalism is that everyone in the world wants to do it or at least that's how it seems when you're advertising for an entry-level position in journalism mm. you know when I was at the New States when we used to recruit for editorial assistance and I once had you know, 250 applications uh, for a single post which was you know paid a, a fine amount you could live on it just about in London but was not you know it was it was a it was a plum job in intellectual terms but not in economic terms. And I think that's a real problem because I could have I could have filled every position that we had with only people who'd got firsts from Oxford or whatever it might be, but you it wouldn't have been the best selection of no, journalists. Quite the opposite. <laughs> yes, I enjoy your anti-Oxford prejudice. Um, <laughs> but, like, but you know what I mean? Is that I, I, but the fact that you had to have at least a degree to even get through the door... Yeah. It was is is sort of wrong in some profound way, and actually some of the places have been. I think Sky did a non-graduate traineeship for people who were school leavers, and I think that 
I think that there I think there are profound problems in lots of those creative arts. Publishing is the same. Academia is the same where you could fill every job, which is low paid and in London with middle class people whose parents are willing to fund them through. And the credentialism just is a further problem in that it just knocks out bright people from perfectly normal economic backgrounds. Do you think as well that in a way the main criteria for a good journalist whether they're a sub-editor or, or writing leaders or whatever, is common sense. And that a good English degree is really no guarantee that you have common sense. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't put my hand in my heart and say that everybody I know with an English degree demonstrates common sense. No. I think that is actually not a bad... What's the, the famous thing is about you need a rat-like cunning, don't yes. you? Um, which I think is also pretty true. But yeah, you do need... To come back to that kind of idea about heresy and you do need to have a sort of sniffometer not to be... I think you need to be fundamentally cynical, but not to a point where it poisons you. Yes. The right amount of cynicism is the is the, probably the thing you need in journalism. Because my husband's a journalist, and quite often there will be a story where we just go, I don't believe that. I just don't yeah. believe that. And it really troubles me that that's become harder and harder to say. So I, I wrote a piece about... Um, a while ago about TikTok and people who who claim to have Tourette's on there. And actually quite a lot of them might have something else, might have functional neurological disorder. But there is there are whole genres of that all across journalism where people will talk very personally and very painfully about their personal experiences. And the sort of other half of that is that we're not, it's mean to question that. But they're often making political claims on the basis of those experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and and you therefore can't put them in a realm beyond scrutiny. And so it's it's interesting to me, having been a teenager in the 90s when journalism was incredibly cruel. You know, I'm talking about the kind of height of bad tabloid going through people's bins, hate yes, campaigns yes. against people. And a lot of the sort of be kind rhetoric is a, a response to that and a necessary correction. But I do think there are now lots of situations in which journalists need to be a bit less kind. That's a terrible quote. <laughs> But you know what? Do you know what I, I do mean? Know exactly what you mean. Well, you have to say, I know you think you've got this illness, but you haven't. That's a tough. People need to be more difficult. Well, that's always my marketing strategy. Yes. Um, I want to ask if you think that you are yourself a late bloomer. Hmm. In your in the tone of voice that you write in, you very often, you know, you write like a an Atlantic journalist, and there are these moments, I think, of real wit. I don't mean jokey, I mean clever. Mm. And so a line like, your vagina is not a democracy, yeah. is very funny, but it's also very... It's true. Sort of Alexander Pope-ish. <laughs> yes! But That's you... the best possible reference. <laughs> yes, I hope to write very mean epigrams about people one day. Please do. But you can also be very jokey. Like when you said, I think in a footnote, that you don't watch porn because the sofas are so bad. It's true. Now, there is something in those sort of moments of wit that I think suggest that you could, if you wanted to, go and do something other than what you've already done. Like maybe like Charles Moore, you'd become a biographer or maybe you'd become a novelist or maybe you'll run a think tank or maybe you'll set up a newspaper and only employ 16-year-old school leavers or yeah. I don't know. Is that how you think about yourself or am I... You're, tra- you're trying to tell me I need to just grow up. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Stop clowning around like a sea lion for applause. I, and to throw my your theory fish. of Helen Lewis is 
you've got all the accolades that someone could want from a journalistic career. Not true. I've only ever won one award for journalism, and you're getting no, your love. It was star. mainstream video games, mainstream video games writer of the year. Oh my That's god! It. From the Games Awards in 2013, which I I only remember this because every so often my publisher will put award-winning journalist as a lyric on it. I'm like, not really, Gov. Not if I'm honest. Um. You're right, though. I have one of the plum jobs in journalism, which is, you know, I work three days a week at The Atlantic and then I make radio documentaries on the side and write books. And that is a a position which is enormously enviable. But I have also... So I've moved away from column writing in the last couple of years. Mm. You know, I used to write a regular op-ed column because I found it a deeply unsatisfying form. And I think when you do jokes, you begin to realise that you can actually just say stupid easy clap lines and in a, with sufficient confidence and people will respond to them and after a while you begin to hate yourself for doing that <laughs> well it's one of the reasons like again like getting off twitter you know what i mean you see some of those accounts that just exist yes. to do lazy little dunks about um you know the people that are are, are appointed that are, are sort of designated hate subjects yeah so if someone gets to designated as a hate subject then you can say nasty things about them and then everybody will applaud you and i fundamentally revolt from that and i don't like it i think that you know as a journalist you should always try and be at right angles to whatever the prevailing opinion is and actually as i've got older i, I value the sort of the people i think i was contrarian to i think really believe it rather than the people who are doing it for effect someone like a peter hitchens He's got a whole ideology that's very much mm. not mine and a set of interest, uh, uh, opinions and he believes them and he truly argues them. And although they're in, and whether or not they're popular or unpopular is of no interest to him, that's what he believes. And, you know, I, and I distinguish that from other people I think are opportunists who end up tacking right. where they see that. And, you know, and a lot of the anti-woke people end up in that space, yes. right, where they just, that's, that's a little niche where you can get kind of clapped a... And so I really do think that's the, the the point of journalism. But I yeah, I take your point. I think I feel I've exhausted having glib opinions at short notice. And that's not something that I'm interested in. So there might be doing. a second act where we see a whole new Helen Lewis. Well, as I say, I, I, I wrote a screenplay last year and I'm now having meetings with TV companies. And I certainly, at The Atlantic, have moved to writing... <laughs> much less than I used to and then much weirder stuff and much more mm. so I've got a piece that's coming out in the magazine this month which is about Europe's ex-royals and what they do what do you do when you're when you should be emperor of the Austro-Hungarian empire but there's no Austro-Hungarian empire right or you should be king of Albania but Albania doesn't have a king anymore and I thought, this is really weird. <laughs> I, I, like, I get to interview a Habsburg, which is basically the pinnacle of my life. That's <laughs> what I've ever wanted from journalism. Um, but to do that kind of stuff is is interesting. But you're you're writing a book, so you are just about to embark on the fact that writing a book is is the worst possible thing that you can do to yourself. Yes. Because it's like torture, probably to no end, that you've chosen freely. So you've literally got no one to complain to. When, when on the day when you're like, you just cannot focus on writing your book, no one wants to hear it. You know, my granddad went down a mine. That's a job you can complain about. I have to sit in the library and try and think how these two ideas connect in my mind. Mm. I've no one, no one cares. That is the, the tiniest violin is even then too big for that complaint. 
But um, I like the idea of being a late bloomer. What I like more, I guess, than bloomer makes you imply that you're somehow, it will be bigger. I think it's more about being different. Yes. And my best friend, Laura, has had the most amazing career. So she did PP at university and then she went to work for KPMG and then she went to work, for, she took Teach First and she became a teacher and she taught in schools in East London for a while. Then she took, um, started working on a PhD about charter schools. Then she took Michael Gove to court. Then she founded a, uh, a, a newspaper about education. Now she's founded an app that surveys teachers. And it all has a coherence to it, right? Like it's all in the same genre. She's obviously interested in education. But at no point has she ever thought, right, that's it, that's me done. I'll see you at 65 when, you know, and for some mm. golf and gardening. It's always been about how can I keep moving? She's, she is the, she's the shark of education. She needs to, and, and I think that's true. And if you don't have kids, as she doesn't and I don't, you have the luxury to be able to do that and therefore you should keep moving on. And um, But I do think it's... Don't you think that people want to be able to categorise you? Yes, I think it can be very career-limiting to do yeah. different things. Yeah. Depending on how you... What, depending on what sort of career you want. To, whether you care about what other people think is the critical fact. Yeah. I think if I wanted to win lots of awards and or have a nice, well-paid life, I would just keep writing the same book about feminism 90 times. And then people mm. would be like, oh, that's we need to get the feminist speaker in. Who's the feminist speaker? It's Helen. Um, so I think you have a more interesting career. But I think it's... It, it, it's it's interesting which writers Penelope Fitzgerald who I know you love too yeah. that she writes she you know she writes a different book every time yes although there's a sort of continuity in um the type of characters and the weirdness of her settings mm. even though the actual places are very different so she's not quite one of those novelists who really does move from one thing to another and you can't yeah some sort of baroque revenge drama to then suddenly writing a kind of realist detective fiction and you go what but that i mean that definitely um meant that reviewers and sort of you know all the highbrows who were enjoying martin amos at that time it gave them another reason to say who is this old woman and what are her books i don't understand why is this one on a boat i was why is she not salman rushdie that kind of yeah. that made it very easy for them to do that to her. Yeah, and I think that's probably what happens in journalism too. You know, they, you, columnists tend to last for an incredibly long time mm. because people just sort of have a familiarity to them. And I and you know I used to think that was kind of, you know, I would read the Richard Littlejohn column and be like, he's written this column again. <laughs> but then I realised that people quite like the familiar. They want to know what a Richard Littlejohn column is and that all of what his opinions are going to be. And but might it be different now because you've got people who read your newsletter who mm-hmm. are more interested in you than in, oh, I, I you know, I want another Hen and Lewis column. And if you did turn <laughs> no around... No one has ever said, but go on. Well, no, I think I think there's a certain truth to have... You have more control over your audience than just it being the people who read The Atlantic because they get what they get. Mm. So if you did turn around and say, you know, I'm going to write a history of Sardinia or whatever, something totally sort of, I'm going to write a history of defunct royals or oh, I'm going to be a playwright... <laughs> Um, they might go, great. I'm in. I'm in it for what Helen Lewis is doing, and it, I don't know. It might be easier to have that sort of career now. I think that's interesting. I think that maybe is true as well because um, I think writers now do become brands, and there's a yeah. version in economics. You know, this idea of superstar theory, where it's become very hard to be like a mid-level musician. Yes. But if you're Taylor Swift and Beyonce, 
you're making better money than anyone ever ever yeah. made. And I think a similar thing has happened with journalism. If you look at Substack, if you're Barry Weiss or Andrew Sullivan or one of the top, Matt Iglesias, one of the top people, you're earning millions. Um, the far more than you would have got from a staff job oh, yeah. at a paper. And you're, you are the brand. Um, but at the same time, it's actually, the I would say, the wages have stagnated enormously for, you know, a kind of sub-editor on a paper. It's just... Yeah. It hasn't gone up at all and, and inflation has just eaten it away. And so I think there is a a big reason to be a, a brand, much though the word makes me want to cry. And in a way, what that argues for is to say, well, if I'm not going to be Matt Iglesias and make X millions, I should do lots of different things um, because otherwise I'll get caught in being the same. You know, in 10 years, I'll turn around and say, God, I'm still doing this. And I'm not a millionaire. But that's it. But I don't know why you want to write. But the reason I want to write is I'm incredibly nosy and I love finding stuff out. Nothing makes me happier yes. than the idea of finding stuff out. And even better if I can then find people who will listen to me telling them the thing that I just <laughs> found out. And and why would you want to not like being curious and having licensed curiosity? Mm. I like nothing more than getting off a plane somewhere new and weird and being like, well, this is all different. Like the cups are different. Like I'm, and I'm gonna, you know, whatever it might be, that you're just going to immerse yourself. And I feel like that about reading history as well. When you just suddenly find out about, like, you know, what it was like to Tudor toilets were like. You're like, yes. it's sort of mind blowing that you go, well, even the toilets were different, which of course they were. But that's to me the point of of writing. Like, why not? Go, there are any number of things that are easier, better paid, have better hours, whatever it might be, than writing. But the thing you get with writing is that you get to keep moving and keep That's digging That's why I'm wondering soil. if you might turn around and become a historical novelist or a biographer of, you know, defunct Habsburg. Royal biography sells very well. It's true. Especially in America. But I don't... I, only, I speak a bit of German and I speak slightly better French, so the royal biographer is tough. I feel like all the British royals have really been kicked to death at this point. Mary II, that's an underrated... Very underrated. Uh, ...royal biography. Perhaps I can write that. But yeah, I but but I have I have been trying I've been enjoying trying to write screenplays. It's a very different discipline, um, because you have to you. But it's all about hard decisions. Like you have to make the hard decisions, and you have to put your characters in places where they make hard decisions. And each time you're like a tiny like a judge banging a tiny gavel about <laughs> deciding what an incident means or who was in the wrong or who was mm. in the right. So it does force you to take positions. I think, which is not something that. You know, something I feel like I've cleaved away from. There's someone that did a thing about why young people write... It was maybe even you. Did you mention this? That young people write better rock songs. I haven't heard that. Because they're very certain about what's wrong and what's right. Uh, and they're very yeah, angry. Right. And they're more emotional. And the same thing that um, the guy behind Slate Star Codex has written about. One of the things that happens with bipolar people is you tend to get less... I think it's about... Is it bipolar or is it borderline personality? Maybe it's borderline where people tend to... One of the things that ameliorates it is age because we generally all become mm. more stable and grounded and boring. Mm. And at 50, you're not like seeing some guy on the bus and immediately falling in love and writing poetry about him, right? It, the, and I think the same thing has happened to me in terms of my career. I'm, I feel like a lot less certain about stuff and I'm a lot less interested in putting forward my incredibly strong opinions on stuff. And I wonder if that's a reaction to social media or I wonder if that's just I'm getting old I'm now in my my nuance era right <laughs> <laughs> I've entered my nuance years I know have you entered your nuance years or were you always in them I I think I've been here for a long time okay that's yeah I'm I afraid wish, I wish I've, I I've been. been told that I've been old for a long time mm. 
I was I was a kind of angry young woman, I guess, and I just I have maybe I've mellowed. Helen Lewis, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.